0: Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12. I'll be reading verses 1 through 4 in a moment for our context, but our focus will be on verse 3. It's been something that has been remarked since I've been in the UK, that whatever seems to happen culturally in the United States, eventually, after a matter of years, uh, makes its way across the pond. Uh, for good or ill. I think uh, most of the time that's actually for ill, not for good. Um, we were over there for three weeks and I was struck by how so many Christians were uh, politicized, I don't know what else to call it. Uh, not, they were not just uh, interested and in doing their civic duty, but they their mindsets were different than what I had remembered from when I was there uh, back uh, nine years ago or more. And let me take you back a little further. Back in the 1970s and the early 80s, uh, a gentleman by the name of Jerry Falwell started something called the Moral Majority. And what he was hoping for was as that he would rally Christians to the cause of changing the morals of the United States through the political process, through making laws and enforcing things, and uh, that was his hope and his desire. Um, As this movement started to gain steam, in fact, if you track the morals of the United States, you'd see an inverse relationship by how much those Christians were involved in politics to change things, uh, the morals of the nation declined. The more they were involved, the faster it seemed to decline. And that movement lost steam in the 1980s, and it seemed to be dormant uh, for a while. Uh, and I, but I was shocked when I returned there this time how much people were hoping uh, to change things uh, from a Christian perspective. I'm not speaking about the world, but from a Christian perspective, how much they were hoping to change things through politics, through trying to get the wrong person out and get the right person in, and laws to be made that would uh, reflect uh, biblical morals. It was very surprising to me, and it's something that I I, I don't know that I've recognized it here in Britain yet, but I wanted to say I hope it doesn't come uh, because I think it's the incorrect mindset for a believer I think we miss the point of scripture, and especially the verse that we're looking at this morning, if we think that we're going to be doing something that is going to change the world, morally speaking, instead of preaching the gospel. Let's go ahead and read those first four verses once again of chapter 12 of Hebrews. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, against sin when you think about the book of Hebrews uh, you need to recall what the book is about Uh, the writer of Hebrews writes to these Hebrew believers and there are the book is laden with warnings warnings about uh, those that look like Christians and are not uh, that are in their midst and warnings about uh, being sure that you're in the faith and being sure that you don't uh, allow the world to creep in and you don't uh, live according to the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 11, he gives us this wonderful list of those that have lived and died by faith. Over and over again, he's going back and saying, look, all of those ones in the Old Testament that you thought were living according to the law, they weren't. They were living according to grace. They were living according to faith. They were looking to him who is invisible. They were looking to God to get through these difficulties. And so chapter 12 comes, and he, the question then would arise, well, how do we do it? How do we live by faith if they lived by faith? Well, we, it's the same way. First off, you remember those that had done it, those that, that great cloud of witnesses, those that, that say, yes, the life of faith is real. It works. We trust the ever-living one whether those circumstances worked out in their favor or not. For some, it seems like they had victory through faith. And some, it seems like they had failure because you're looking at the circumstances. But you should never look at the circumstances when it comes to faith. Faith is the victory, regardless of those circumstances. Whether you die, whether you seem to be crushed by circumstances, faith says, You have the victory in Jesus Christ because you will be with him because he cares for you. And so he says, in that essence, when you see so many doing it, well, now examine yourselves. Examine your own life. See if there is sin that shouldn't be there and remove that sin. See if there are things that are distracting you. They may not be bad things. They may not be sin, but they're not the best thing. Remove those things from your life. Examine yourself on a continual basis. And how do you do that? Well, you look unto Jesus. You look unto the one who lived that life of faith, where our faith originates. And you remember that he went to the cross thinking of you, that you were the joy that was set before him. You were the one, you were the reason he endured. And as you do that, You're going to see things differently. But sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes we lose sight of the goal because of circumstances. Sometimes we think we've got it worse than anybody else does. Sometimes we think, oh, nobody else has to deal with what I've got to deal with. Sometimes we have that woe is me mentality. And that happens. We see it. In the Old Testament, with the Israelites constantly. And we say, look how foolish the Israelites were. Look at the promises they had. And then when something happens in our life, what is the first thing out of our mouth? Oh, Lord, why? Why did this happen to me? Lord, take it away. Don't let me deal with this today. I want a smoother ride. Well, that's no different than the Israelites were. You see, we've forgotten something. We've forgotten something very important. And that is that we were never promised a smooth ride. We were promised a ride of faith, not a smooth ride. And our faith is in the one who suffered and died on our behalf. And that's when we come to verse 3. He says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Now, those first two words, consider, for consider, He's saying, you know, I'm asking you to remember all those that have run the race. I'm asking you to look unto Jesus. But as you do that, I want you to think about something. I want you to meditate upon something. Now, the, the biblical meditation is different than, than the world's meditation. The world's meditation will have you empty your mind of everything. Well, that's not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation has you to fill your mind with the things of God. Think upon these things, as Paul says in Philippians Meditate, as as the psalmist says in Psalm 1, upon the law of God, upon the things that God has said. That's filling your mind with God. Look unto Jesus, the one who died for you. Think about him. But there's more than just thinking about Jesus, there's a certain aspect of looking unto Jesus that is important for us to remember in the difficult circumstances. And that's what the author is talking about here in verse three. He says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Now, some translations will have hostility here. Consider him who endured such hostility. But reality says that's not actually the word that that should be there. It should be contradiction of sinners. You see, hostility is only part of what the Greek word is about. Yes, there is hostility. But it's hostility that shouldn't exist. And that's why the translation says contradiction of sinners against himself. Because there's, it's truly a contradiction. It's truly something that shouldn't be the way it is. What does he mean by this? What is it that the writer is getting at? Well, I hope I can help you to see that. Jesus Christ is king of kings. He's Lord of lords. The reason that I chose Hebrews chapter 1 for our call to worship is because it sets the tone as to who Jesus is. The the, the language in Hebrews 1 is, is glorious. It's beautiful language. It's poetic. Let me read it to you. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, notice who his Son is, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, By whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's who Jesus Christ is. He is the express image of the person of God. Everything that you know about God is in Jesus Christ. He is the brightness of his glory. People talk about, I want to see the glory of God. Then see Jesus, because he's the brightness of his glory. Not only this, he is the heir of everything. You say, well, why is the heir? he the heir of everything? Well, the writer says, he's the one who made the worlds. He's the one who formed the stars. He's the one who created the sun, the moon, the earth, everything in it was created by the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, he says a wonderful thing in verse 3. He says, and upholding all things by the word of his power. So that as Jesus Christ is walking on this earth, the earth has its existence because of the power of Jesus Christ. He is upholding it while he's upon it. Now, As you think about that, as you think about who he is, then you think about what he went through. He became the captain of our salvation through what? Through suffering. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He became a man. Almighty God became a man. Not only did he become a man, He had no place to lay his head. He wasn't in a palace. He had no place to lay his head. He wasn't believed. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was crucified. The one who hung the stars in place was beaten by those that he created. Not only was he beaten by those he created, he was upholding them and their lives while they were beating him. They could only take a breath because of the word of his power while they are doing these things unto him. When you get that, that's when you understand what it means that he endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. The very ones who have their life and being because of Jesus Christ are the ones treating their creator in such a fashion. That's what it means. That's the contradiction of sinners against Jesus Christ. It's appalling to think about. It's appalling to consider how he was treated, not just as a man, but as the creator, as the sustainer, as the one who gives all good things. Here he is, he hung the stars in place, and he's allowing this man to strike him. Here he is, he's the one who who said, let there be light. And he's allowing this one to put a nail in his body. It's allowing him to put the crown of thorns on his head. That's the contradiction of sinners against Jesus Christ. And it's remembering that, that will help you not to grow weary, not to faint in your mind, not to sit back and think, oh, it's worse than it's ever been. Not to sit back and say, I've got it worse than anybody else in the history of mankind. Not to look at the sinners out there and say, boy, it's never been like this. I can tell you it's been worse than this. Because the Savior, the Creator, was suffering at the hands of the created. Not only were they making idols unto false things, unto the creation, they were beating and, and mocking and belittling the Creator. You know, I used to enjoy watching the news When I was in secondary school, I I knew everything that was going on, you you could imagine. I I actually enjoyed it. But I found that I started talking to the TV when the news came on. And now, if Jennifer wants to watch the news, my wife wants to watch the news, I have to leave the room. I can't actually sit there and watch the news with her because I get too upset at all of the things that are taking place at all of the silliness that goes on in this world not just the events that take place but the comments of the people that are reporting on the news doesn't matter which side they're on they just it gets too much and i get stressed and so instead now i leave the room now what's my problem in those times i get distracted i get distracted from the one who is in control I get distracted from the things that he went through and I start to think, boy, it's not been like that before. Would you ever imagine this was going to happen? Boy, did you ever think this was going to take place? And I forget about the contradiction of sinners against Jesus Christ. I think that I've got it worse than other people have. And yet the scripture tells us to keep him in view. The scripture tells us to keep the contradiction of sinners in view. How many times are we told in Scripture to stand firm, not to faint? I haven't gone through and counted them because there's too many. In the Old Testament, as well as the New, Paul tells us repeatedly. The Lord tells us, James, Peter, stand firm. How do you stand firm in the face of such sin? Well, you remember that there is one who suffered for you, who stood firm, with a greater contradiction in his face. That you don't have it quite as bad as you think you do. You don't have it quite as awful as the world would make it out to be. Why do we need to remember these things? Because there is a danger of fainting. Because we can, just like Peter, get distracted by circumstances. You know, it's, a, it's always amazing that, that when, when I hear messages and, and people talking about Peter, when Jesus is walking on the water, and, and they'll talk about him going down and sinking. But I always remember, you know, he got out of the boat. He got out, right? He's walking on the water. There's been two people in the history of the world who've walked on water, Jesus and Peter. What was Peter's problem? Peter's problem was the same problem that we have. He got distracted by circumstances. Think about it for a moment. Here he is. He is walking on water and his Lord's in front of him saying, come on, Peter, come to me. How could he get distracted? I mean, amazing situation. And yet when that water hits his face, when the wind whips his hair around, he looks away and he starts to sink. And he cries out, Lord, help me. And Jesus is immediately there, picks him up out of the water and they walk Again, on water, back to the boat. That is a perfect picture of the life of a believer because circumstances are always going to come and try and turn your head, try and be like that spray and that wind and push you to something else. But what do you do? You cry out, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. I need you. I need to be focused upon who you are, not upon the wind and the waves not upon these things that are so difficult. Isaiah says in chapter 40, but they that wait upon Jehovah shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. How do you go through life in the midst of tremendous difficulties? And I'm not minimizing the difficulties that we go through. Some of them are, I wouldn't wish them on an enemy. And yet, We can walk and not grow weary. We can mount up with wings as eagles. We can not faint. There have been stories throughout history of Christians who have lived the life of faith that you and I would quail at because of what they went through, because of their willingness to keep looking at the Savior. You consider these things and you say, well, Yeah, I've got it tough. Are you better than your master? Jesus says in Matthew 10, the disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. If Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our master, the author of our faith, suffered such contradiction of sinners against himself, what sort of life should you expect as a Christian? Do you think that somehow this world is going to be in favor of you? Do you think that somehow they're going to make laws that say, you know what, let's promote Christianity and do away with everything else? Do you you think that's going to happen? If you do, I'm afraid that that the scriptures, and, and at least myself, I'm going to call you foolish. That's not realistic when it comes to the life of faith. If they treated your Savior in such a fashion, do not expect to be treated better than him. If the things were in place to allow that to happen, then don't be surprised when the laws of the land don't reflect Christian morals. It's, it shouldn't be a shock, it shouldn't be a surprise. Too often, we think of our citizenship in a different manner. Citizenship is an is a important thing in my mind. I'm an American citizen. I've been living now in Britain for about eight and a half years. The desire of my wife and I, and and hopefully our children, they don't really have a choice in the matter because they're not 18, is that next year we're going to get indefinite leave to stay. And then the year after that, we're going to apply for, and hopefully receive, British citizenship so that we will be dual citizens of America and of Britain. That will allow us to be here without any worries for as long as the Lord would have us to be here. Uh, we don't see any uh, situation where that's going to change, but we, we follow what the Lord has to say. Citizenship, for many people, is a very big deal. We can see that in the news with those the situation in Afghanistan. But as Christians, we ought to think differently. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the word conversation there is an old English word that it doesn't mean what we think it means. It's not about us talking to one another. It's our citizenship. That's what the real, the true word should be. It's our citizenship is in heaven. Now for the people in Philippi, this was an important consideration because if you were born in Philippi, you were an automatic Roman citizen. Automatic. You didn't have to buy it. You didn't have to worry, was my parents the right person or not? Philippi was given special consideration by Rome because of of, of the, the, the peace that they've had and the willingness that they had to work with Rome over the centuries. And so Philippi could govern themselves. As long as they paid their taxes, they could govern themselves. And everybody that was born in Philippi was a citizen. But Paul says, you know what, Philippians? Your citizenship is not in Philippi. Your citizenship is not in Rome. Your citizenship is in heaven. We think of it too often. I have to tell you, I am not an American Christian. Neither am I, you can tell by my accent, a British Christian. I am a Christian. That's the beginning and that's the end. I'm a Christian who happens to have been born in America and who happens now to live in Britain for as long as the Lord allows that to take place. My citizenship is not connected to that nation, and my citizenship truly is not connected to this nation. I am a Christian, first and foremost, first and last. That's the end of the sentence, because my citizenship is in heaven. That's where I hope my rewards will be. That's where my Lord is. That's where my life is. It's in heaven. That's when you read Hebrews chapter 11, you find over and over again, what are they doing? They're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Abraham wasn't worried about the promised land, he's worried about the city. Moses wasn't worried about whichever city it was he was living in Egypt, he was worried about the one who was invisible, following after him. We need to shift our thinking. Away from being so concentrated on the way the world is and recognize the sinners in this world are going to continue to sin. They're going to continue to be opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ until He changes things. What do we do? We follow after our Lord and Savior. Let me ask it this way. And I asked this question to a number of, of Christians in the United States. You want to change something through laws. What good would that do? What good would it do to have a moral nation? There have been times that this nation, the UK, was a moral nation. The laws reflected biblical morals. But at no time could you say this was a Christian nation. Why? Because the predominant number of people in the nation were not Christian. Even though the laws reflected the scriptures, this wasn't a Christian nation. The majority of people were not believers. What good does it do to have a moral nation when it comes to eternal things? It doesn't do any good. It would be nice. It would, not, it would be nice not to live in a land where they're promoting evil and declaring good to be bad. It would be lovely. But when I look at Scripture, I find that the disciples, the apostles, are living in an in a empire that was much worse than we're living today. They were living in a place that declared Christianity to be sin, to be wrong. No, you, know, you have to take all of our gods with you. You can't just do one God. No, look at what you're doing. This isn't the way it ought to be. But here we think, oh, you know, this, is the, this is the country of Bunyan, and of Whitfield and of Spurgeon, of so many. J.C. Ryle others. And yet, if you study those men, if you study those individuals, what do you find? That they were all crying out about something, the sin of their day. They were all crying out about the sin of their day, just like we're crying out about the sin of our day. And they're saying, look how awful it is. What do we need? We need Christ. We need Christ. The morals, the laws of the land reflected Christian principles in the days of John Bunyan. They certainly reflected it more than they do today in the days of Whitfield, even in the days of Spurgeon. And yet, what good did it do, spiritually speaking? None. Because the gospel is the only thing that can do something good spiritually. Too often we're focused on, I've oh, got to change the laws. No, you have to preach the gospel. No, you have to show Jesus. Reflect him. When you think about these things, you say, well, what should it be our approach? Well, the scripture tells us how we should treat our government, whether it's if someone living in the United States or someone living in the UK or someone living somewhere else. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. I wish there would be so many more Christians who took that to heart. Live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink, for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnations. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. And he continues on. And the first thing, the first response I hear from from, uh, certainly in the United States is, well, you know, what what if the law is contrary to the word of God? Well, we all understand we follow God first. The laws of man second, without a doubt. But too often, we take things and say, oh, this is the law of God, when it is not the law of God. Too often we are so uh, upset about our rights when in reality, Jesus Christ had the greatest right. And what did he do? He humbled himself. He became a man. He suffered the greatest contradiction of sinners that there could ever be. That's the mind that we have to have. That's what Paul is saying in Philippians. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's God. He's the creator. And here it is, the creation is beating him. And he says, "Okay, I'm doing it for my people's sake. Well, he calls us to do the same for his sake, to follow after him, to live peaceably. Let vengeance be the Lord, overcome evil with good. I asked some folks in the States, I said, you say the government is so bad now because your guy's not in, because somebody else is in there that you don't agree with. Let me ask you something. Are they using Christians as torches along the road to to streetlights? When's the last time you saw on television a Christian being thrown to the lions? Is that happening? Well, in some nations it is. Things similar to that are happening, but it's not happening in the United States and it's not happening here. And yet we think it's so bad. What should you do about it? Well, if you jump on, I don't think it's going to be called the moral majority, but if you jump on that bandwagon, I would have to tell you you're jumping on the wrong bandwagon. You're following after the wrong goal. The only way that morals change is by the heart changing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have made some trips ministry-wise to, to Nepal, to to India, and I was speaking with the man in India about, a. We're, we're, we're trying to figure out when we're going to go again. And it's been difficult because of the pandemic. It was supposed to be last year. It probably won't be this year, and it might be towards the end of next year. But as we were talking, he said, now, I have to ask you, there's a group of people, some tribes, uh, they're Indian, uh, that I've ministered to the gospel to. And I want to know if you're willing to go there and and the people from the U.S. that would go with you to go there. And I said, well, what's the what's the issue? And he said, well, uh, they don't they don't wear clothing very much. The the women don't wear anything on the top and and very little on the bottom. And the men wear even less on the bottom. And I said, what's the purpose of going there? And he said, it's to preach the gospel. I said, now, if we go there, obviously, it's not going to be something that will be pleasant. But if we go there and our focus is to change their culture, then we're going for the wrong reason. If we're gonna change their morals and say, you need to be wearing clothes, you're going for the wrong reason. But if it's about the gospel, then that's the right reason. And if the gospel truly goes there, then their morals will change. And it took me about 15 to 20 minutes to finally get out of him that over the course of time, as he's been visiting, that the people, the general people, they're still exactly the same. But there are a group of christians there now and they do wear clothes they do cover themselves why because the spirit of god has worked upon them to worked upon them to see to, to to clothe their nakedness that's not that's just an example of what the spirit of god does in the heart when you preach the gospel when you preach about sin and the need of a savior and it being jesus christ alone and I tell you that story to, to show you that the answer is not in voting. You should vote. but That's not the answer. Do not place your hopes there. Do not place your hopes that somehow the law will change. And there are certainly people that God has laid on their hearts to change the law. I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to the average believer. I'm talking to each one of us. And we need to recognize that God is the one who moves. That God is the one who shapes that God is the one who does all things, and Jesus Christ endured such contradiction of sinners against himself for your sake. And he's asking you to endure such contradiction of sinners for his sake, to be willing in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of a perverse and, and horrific generation, to put him first, to continue to focus upon him and him alone. The writer of Hebrews I can't say this to you because I don't know what's coming down the road. But the writer of Hebrews he says in verse 4: You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Have have we resisted unto blood, striving against sin? It sounds like the Hebrews were going to have to do that. That there was going to become persecution upon them. That it was going to cost them physically, even to the point of their lives. And he says: Guess what? It doesn't change a thing. Continue to look unto Jesus. Don't look unto Jesus in the hopes that the world is going to change. Don't look unto Jesus in the hopes that the politics is going to come in your favor. Look unto Jesus in the midst of circumstances and continue to worship and praise him and trust him that he has the circumstances in control. And continue to preach the gospel because the changing of a soul, someone being born again, is greater riches than anything any type of life that we can live here. And so we hope and trust in Jesus Christ and say, I wish the circumstances might be different, but I'm going to continue to follow after regardless of those circumstances, regardless of what the world looks like, regardless of the sin. Why? Because of Jesus Christ, because of what he endured for me, because of the contradiction of sinners against him was so great that You know, if they make a law that says I'm not allowed to do something, okay? If it's about preaching, then I'm going to break the law. If it's about sharing the gospel, then I'm going to break the law, and I'll suffer the consequences. And those consequences might be great. I might be kicked out of the country. I may be thrown in prison. I might lose my life. But I follow him who lost his life for my sake and has made me a promise that if I trust him, I'll have eternal life. And so what do we do? We follow after him. Follow after him, remembering the contradiction that he endured so that we might endure some small measure of that same contradiction, not to earn anything, but because of what he did, because he loved me, because that's what it's focused upon, the love of Jesus Christ for his people. And so we point you to the Savior today. Amen.